Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back, guys. It's another massive episode on the Pre-Paces podcast with another huge guest, Dr. Rajan Sharma, echo expert from St. George's Hospital in London. One of our best episodes yet, I'd say, and sure to set you up for success in a cardiology station three. But now for our customary thanks to our donators on the Buy Me A Coffee page. This week, our thanks go to Sherna who says listening to the pod on her way to her exam helped keep her calm before the big day. Well, Sherna, we've got everything crossed for your results and thank you so much for your generosity in donating. And if you want to be like Sherna because you found the podcast helpful, maybe you've just sat your exam or had the good news that you've recently passed, please consider a pay what you can donation over at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But enough on that for now. Let's get stuck into this week's show with Dr. Raj Sharma. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and this week we're returning to the motherland. It's another cardiology classic. And today's episode, we're covering another cardiology station, which always acts as a lasting reminder that flailing leaflets are not confined to a communication station in paces. That's right, we're covering mitral regurgitation, and we are delighted to say we're joined by another esteemed expert in this field. We're joined by Dr. Rajan Sharma. Rajan is a consultant cardiologist and honorary lecturer at St. George's Hospital in London, where he subspecializes in cardiac imaging, including complex echocardiography. And he's kindly given up some of his valuable time to join us for this episode of the podcast. So Rajan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be on the show and hopefully I can help people. And not only will Rajan help us cover mitral regurgitation, but he'll also be taking on Quiz the Consultant at the end of the show. This is the quiz where our consultants take on a number of questions on a specialist subject of their own choosing, with the caveat that it can't be related to medicine. So, Rajan, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? Well, I've chosen 1980s pop music, but let's see how we do on that. Yeah, (laughs) Fantastic. And this is a this is a second time we've had 1980s pop last chosen by uh, 
Dr. Ashley Nisbet, who's a consultant electrophysiologist at uh, at Bristol. So it's going to be a bit of cardiologist versus cardiologist in the 1980s pop, pop genre. <laughs> Without further ado, let's get into this episode looking at mitral regurgitation. So Rajan, just to start off, maybe we can start off with just a couple of absolute basics for our listeners. So what do we mean when we talk about mitral regurgitation? Yeah, okay. So what we're talking about is a leak of blood into the left atrium during systole. Now, a normal heart will leak about five mils of blood. So it's, so all echocardiograms will report trivial mitral regurgitation. It's due to the nature of how the mitral valve is made up. But when it exceeds more than that, then you start to see uh, a leak. So what we're talking about is blood going backwards during systole into the left atrium rather than going forwards into the left ventricle and then subsequently out into the circulation. Yeah, fantastic. And what we do know is that when, as you said, when the amount of blood exceeds that trivial amount, that's when we might need to start paying attention, especially when it's getting into the moderate and severe range. And so why do you think MR is an important station to include in PACES? Firstly, it's common. So remember, the mitral valve is unique to the four heart valves in that its structure and function is determined by the left ventricle itself. So any heart disease of the left ventricle can cause mitral regurgitation. As a consequence of that, it's very, very common. You've got two types of mitral valve disease. Mitral valve disease that's secondary to predominantly left ventricular disease and intrinsic disease of the mitral valve. And both of these conditions are common. If you take the general population and you test them and they feel well, you will find mitral valve disease in three to 5% of that population group. If you take patients who have been hospitalized with any heart condition, then mitral regurgitation will be found in something like 15 to 20% of that group. We've published work in the community setting where GPs are worried about the heart, they've not known what's wrong with the heart, and we find mitral regurgitation in 11 or 12% of that population. So number one, it's prevalent. And then number two, if you take any heart condition, outcome is very much determined by the presence of mitral regurgitation and the severity. So, so that's why it's important and that's why it should be in paces. Fantastic. And I think it would be fair to say that in paces, the most common by far that candidates will find this is in the cardiology examination station. It may be a differential in a station five or a history taking where you might have exertional breathlessness, but we're going to focus very much on the cardiology examination station. So that's uh, half of the station three. And so then if we move on to our examination station, so putting ourselves in the shoes of our listeners, our exam candidates who are coming to sit paces, the first thing that's going to be there is the lead in. And as we've discussed with many cardiology stations we've covered in the past, it may be something as simple as this patient is presented with breathlessness, and that's not particularly specific to anything in cardiology. So moving on from the likely lead-in, which isn't really going to give you too much to indicate mitral regurgitation, we start our examination often from the end of the bed. So Raja, what might our candidates be able to see from the end of the bed, which may indicate that there is some mitral valve disease? To be honest, with mitral regurgitation, unfortunately, very little. 
With mitral stenosis, yes, you may get this classical malar flush. But with, with mitral regurgitation, you probably won't see anything, I'm afraid, in the bed that will distinguish from any other heart cause of breathlessness, to be perfectly frank. One thing which I, which I considered, which is pretty uncommon, but this is the sort of stuff which they do bring out in paces. Some syndromic appearances can uh, include uh, conditions which are associated with that. And one of them I suspected was maybe a possible marfanoid type appearance. Yeah, so I think, you know, that's a slightly different thing. So um, you're quite right. So the prevalence of mitral valve prolapse, for example, in the general population is 1% to 3%. With Marfans, it's near 5 to 7%. So that's certainly a clue. But the problem you'll have with a Marfans patient, they're as likely to have dilatation of their aorta and aortic regurgitation. So I wouldn't necessarily say that if you see a Marfans patient, think mitral regurgitation. I would say think mitral regurgitation or aortic regurgitation. So so that would be my answer for that. I wouldn't necessarily jump in with mitral as being your number one. Yeah. And we haven't yet covered aortic regurgitation on the show. So I'm sure listeners will be keeping their eyes and ears out for that episode when it's coming up, uh, whenever we choose to record that. So moving through the examination nice and swiftly, you'll be expected to look at the hands and what might the, uh, the the listeners be able to find in the hands of a patient with mitral regurgitation? Again, I'm afraid not too much. You won't see clubbing. You won't see any flushes. You, you really won't see anything that I think is going to make you think, I think this patient may have mitral regurgitation, to be perfectly frank. And then one of the things I guess that may help our listeners is the presence of atrial fibrillation in the pulse might just be a, a soft sign that there's some mitral disease there. Yeah, so when you come to the pulse, that is slightly different. And, and you know, even when I was doing it, it wasn't cool paces then. If you are being asked to examine someone and you and you feel atrial fibrillation, that's different. It very is very common in mitral valve disease, much rarer in aortic valve disease. So, so that's absolutely true. Whenever I'm... Uh, examining someone in a clinic or wherever once i feel atrial fibrillation i tend to think mitral in my mind as well so so that's an absolutely key thing that you should look for it doesn't mean they've got it but it certainly should be um alerting you to that you're quite right and the other thing which you often find in in these patients if they do have atrial fibrillation they are well they should be anticoagulated as well and I guess one thing just to comment on from our listeners' perspective is if you see signs of widespread bruising or spontaneous bruising, that would be something else just to mention in your presentation to the examiner. I think that's a good point. So I think um, the issue of uh, anticoagulation with warfarin or what we call a DOAC, these direct agents, yes, it does cause bruising, but only in the elderly. So you shouldn't at your age or my age start bruising with it. Um, it's something you should comment on and the examiner may ask you why are you seeing that bruising and you should certainly say um, a patient who's got atrial fibrillation is on anticoagulants but you should but you should also comment on skit on capillary fragility etc and don't necessarily assume it's that so i think you should always be mindful the people we have on on warfarin for atrial fibrillation or a doac the ones that bruise tend to be the elderly yeah fantastic and then Moving up to the to the face and neck of our patient that we suspect might have mitral regurgitation, and as we've already said, we, you may well get to this point and not actually have a, a huge idea about 
what may be going on. Would you particularly find any abnormalities of, of the JVP in a cardiovascular examination? Because that's a really key part of the examination. So, so the JVP in pure mitral regurgitation may be raised, okay? What you usually find if it's causing the JVP to be raised is that you've got coexistent tricuspid valve involvement. So if you take patients with mitral regurgitation, the tricuspid valve will be involved in about 30 to 40% of patients. And in that group, even at moderate tricuspid regurgitation, you can have a raised JVP and what we call prominent V waves. So these are the outward pulsations of the V waves. And that's pretty common. It's usually in patients who've got chronic severe mitral regurgitation who are fairly compensated. They'll be the ones we send for the exams, not those in extremists. And they often do have a raised JDP with prominent V waves. The actual pulse in the carotid will either just show a normal pulse or atrial fibrillation. The, those prominent V waves, uh, I guess we'll come on to talk about them a bit later, but my understanding that it may indicate they've got a degree of pulmonary hypertension. Yes, um, that's quite a crude, I didn't mean it like that, but, but possibly. It doesn't mean it's pulmonary hypertension. You can have, so in fact, patients with tricuspid regurgitation, often they actually have normal or low normal pulmonary artery pressure. So it is a sign of pulmonary hypertension, but there are other signs of that. Um, because what's happening with tricuspid regurgitation is your blood is going from low pressure to low pressure. And it doesn't actually always raise the pulmonary pressure. So it's a possibility, but the presence of V waves alone does not mean that. So I think just be careful with that. You can get it with normal pulmonary pressures or without high pulmonary pressures. So it's worth saying it could be, but it doesn't follow that it will be. Yeah. So I guess the key there is just to always caveat it with this may be a sign of not necessarily this is definitely a sign of that yeah there may be a sign and you know we live in an era now where i mean you may or may not come on to the workup of mitral regurgitation we because these signs are crude we we measure the pressures with echo we sometimes do it invasively and the correlation between a raised jvp and um v waves and pulmonary hypertension is very weak actually so so i think just be careful i think there's no harm in saying it but i wouldn't go any further than that and unfortunately for our listeners, this is where real life separates itself from advances in, in medical technology. And actually, what we may find on a clinical examination doesn't doesn't fit with the true uh, or, or gold standard values that we measure in, in our clinical practice. Um, but unfortunately, PACES isn't really going anywhere. So we're going to have to just cope with that as best we can. I, I agree. And I think it's important to have those arguments with the examiner and make sure that you understand that it is that it could be due to it. I just wouldn't be dogmatic and say it is due to it. Um, so that, that's what I was really saying. Brilliant. And then moving on to the chest. Now, this is where the money's going to be for your examination. So as, as always in our examinations, we, we whip through everything we've discussed so far, get to the chest as, as quickly as you possibly can. And so this is where we're going to spend a good amount of time going through this in detail. And so the first part of any paces examination you're going to inspect the chest so starting with inspection Rajan what do our listeners need to really look out for when they start to inspect the chest of these patients this can be useful particularly in people with chronic mitral regurgitation which you're likely to get they're often quite slim and you will see so you should stand at the end of the bed and really look very closely at the apex look at the left submammary region it's not uncommon that for a volume overloaded left ventricle the apex may be displaced and it may be slightly thrusting because it's very volume overloaded and you can literally see it in a slim person. So when you see that 
And also the difference between the enlargement of the heart with mitral regurgitation, certainly in the early stages, and heart failure is the pump is still strong. And so remember, in early mitral regurgitation, even severe, what's actually happening is the heart's finding it quite easy to pump blood because most of it's going backwards against a sort of low pressure left atrium rather than into the systemic circulation. So remember, the pressure in the left atrium is 10 millimeters of mercury. Your blood pressure is 120, 130. So actually the heart is doing this. It's dynamic and you will see it. So you will see a dynamic displaced apex beat. And I saw one on the ward this morning when I was going around. I mean, it's not uncommon to see that. So look very closely at that and you'd be surprised how often you see it. Yeah. So that's going to also lead on to our palpation as well. So obviously you're going to need to know the the exact location of where the apex beat should be. So fifth intercostal space, midclavicular line. And if you're not feeling it in that particular area, then the advice from us would be, move your fingers around almost towards the axillary region. And if you're finding it there, that is abnormal. And just as a matter of routine, not that it's particularly uh, pertinent to uh, much regurgitation itself, but commenting on the presence of cardiac devices, the presence of a midline stenotomy suggestive of cardiac surgery, these aren't pertinent to much regurgitation. But in a cardiology station, these patients may well have that just as a as part of their presentation. And you'd be silly to miss it um, and not present it to the examiners if you did see it. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, I've already explained that mitral regurgitation is a disease of the heart muscle in many ways. So actually, although you're right, it, it doesn't point to mitral regurgitation. It's not uncommon for some of the most severe patients sent for paces with mitral regurgitation for it to be post-bypass surgery. So you're quite right. Midline stenotomy, really important. The other scars, remember that increasingly we're operating on the mitral valve with minimal approaches. So there are additional different scars now to the midline stenotomy that will, may not be coming in just yet, but, but, but will be very soon. So do look out for the other types of scars. So these, these minimal ones, the scars are usually just below the nipple. You see these two little dot scars. So just bear in mind there are other types of scars to comment on as well that may be related to cardiac surgery. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll come on to that when we come on to talk about the management yeah. uh, a little bit later in the episode. And I guess one thing which, uh, again, might, might be something that you find in the textbooks rather than in, in clinical practice, but it's still something which we ought to mention is is palpable thrills over the, the respective valvular areas. If their listeners have felt a thrill through the course of their exam preparation, then fantastic, always good to mention, but really the, the money's going to be in the auscultation. And what's most important here is the, is the correct description and um, accurate description of the murmur itself. So Rajan, what is the typical characteristic murmur that the listeners should find when examining a patient with classical mitral regurgitation? So I think the only other two bits I want to say, because I obviously spoke about visual inspection, is the palpation, as you quite rightly say. So, so the apex is usually displaced. It will be thrusting, and you're quite right. You will sometimes, it's not an academic uh, thing that's in the textbooks, you will feel a palpable thrill in those patients who have severe mitral regurgitation. Now, auscultation is obviously where it all is. It's very difficult doing these under exam conditions, and I have very clear ways in which I like this to be done. So it remains very important when you auscultate that before and it's easy to say and it's very difficult to do in the exams please do not think about the heart murmur when you put the stethoscope on or you will be in a guessing game okay 
make sure you absolutely understand your first and second heart sounds and just spend your first five seconds loved up, loved up. I'm in rhythm with this heart beating. Block out any murmur you may feel. Don't be afraid to feel the pulse. I've stopped using the pulse now because I've got used to it, obviously. But do whatever you do is do not think about the murmur. Do not even think about what you think it is based on all the features that we've just discussed going round because you will plump at something, okay? Everyone starts in a slightly different position. You know, the MTAP route, so you can go around the chest in different areas. I tend to start in the left sternal edge and then move around, but it doesn't really matter. And I like to first concentrate on the first two sounds and then see if I can hear a murmur, either between the first and second, in which case it's a systolic murmur, or in diastole. I will simply just move into the usual four positions until I hear it loudest. And it is a fact that if it's mitral, it will be loudest over the left submammary region. That usually gives me a clue. And then once I've determined where I think it's loudest and whether I think it's in systole or diastole, I then focus on the actual nature of the murmur. Now, the murmur for mitral regurgitation is very specific for this valve. It is never in early systole. It's in mid to late systole in the early stages. So a moderately leaky valve will have a murmur that begins in mid to late systole. And the reason for that is with a leaky valve, it will only start leaking during systole when the pressure in the left ventricle exceeds the left atrium. So it can't be at the onset of systole. Okay, so it's usually in mid to late. Then when it becomes very severe, it of course occurs throughout the cardiac cycle and that's, that's your classical pan-systolic murmur. And it's usually loudest in expiration as well. So if you really want the full Monty, you will either describe a mid to late systolic murmur, loudest over the low, lower left sternal edge, which is accentuated in expiration or a pan-systolic murmur, loudest. And then of course you talk about the radiation going up to the axilla. In slim people, the problem is it radiates everywhere. So people get confused by that. So it can go to the crotties, it can go anywhere, but the classical textbook from nearly 40, 50 years is to the axilla. And the only other thing you will see, because we do send these patients, is we do send very slim people with a condition called mitral valve prolapse. They, they can have a pan-systolic murmur or mid to late uh, systolic murmur. Um, but they often have, they often have a, another sound after the first sound called an ejection click. So, so these are all the various features to get. The usual is the pan-systolic murmur, loudest in expiration, over the left sternal edge, radiant in the axilla. But really try and build it up in your mind before you just plump. Too often I see even quite experienced, even registrars sometimes who've got paces, you can't, they can't wait to tell you that it, you know, where it is and what it's from. Just take those few seconds and you'll be surprised if you practice that again and again and again, it gets easier and easier. Raj, and I want to ask, ask you a question from the perspective of a, a hypothetical listener. A lot of people struggle with murmurs, understandably. And like you say, they often hear murmurs all over the chest. They, they can say, there's a systolic murmur all over the chest. Are there any hard sensitive signs or specific, more specific signs which will differentiate between the two most common murmurs which you'll see, which is going to be aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation? Firstly, they can be similar. So please don't, you know, they can be similar, particularly if you're not 
um, that experience. So I think the key with murmurs, even at paces, is that as you've quite rightly said, you at least are able to link a pathology to the murmur. It's when you start saying aortic regurgitation is in systole, I'm afraid we won't spend too long with you. So even with aortic stenosis, now aortic stenosis, the murmur is completely different to be fair. It is in systole, but remember, this is now blood struggling to come out during the systolic cycle. So the murmur is much harsher. It's what we call crescendo decrescendo. So it is very soft at the beginning, gets louder and gets softer. With, with mitral regurgitation, what you find is the murmur is either the same sound throughout, same intensity, in which case it's pan-systolic, and the late systolic murmurs, you literally don't hear anything after the first sound. So, so, it, so what I'm trying to say is it's really the heart sounds that give it away. If you've got your first two sounds there and you've blocked out everything else, you then, I, I still now, I close my eyes and go, right, where am I hearing this? I'm hearing it in very early in systole. That's likely to be aortic stenosis. If it's in mid to late, it is not. The, the other one that is common is tricuspid regurgitation, which produces exactly the same murmur as mitral regurgitation. But the difference is it's loudest in inspiration while the mitral is loudest in expiration. So they're, they're the two things that I look for. So if I hear a systolic murmur, then it's going to be tricuspid regurgitation, aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation. If it's loudest in expiration, I'm left with two causes as far as paces are concerned. There are other causes, um, aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation. Then it's difficult. Um, and then you do rely on some of your other signs as well. So with aortic stenosis, you don't get a palpable thrill. You don't get a thrusting displaced apex speed. You get a heaving apex speed, slightly different feel that's usually not displaced. It's quite difficult for the heart to enlarge with aortic stenosis until your end stage. The pulse is different. I wouldn't expect atrial fibrillation. And actually, for many patients, the pulse is slow rising with aortic stenosis. So, so you build that picture up and you add it to the murmur. But if ultimately you've not got anything to distinguish, there is really no harm in saying I cannot distinguish between the two and allow the examiner to slightly probe you for things that you may have found elsewhere that may have helped. So that would be my best answer for that. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's something which a lot of people at least have asked me that it's just, you know, there's an abnormal sound. How do you, how do you uh, differentiate it? But yeah, great, great yeah. advice. And then I guess to finish off one thing, which is always recommended in a cardiology station, which you'd be expected to mention in your presentation is listening to the lung bases for bibasal crepitation suggestive of decompensated heart failure, pulmonary edema. While you've sat them forward, sacral edema for the same reason, and then moving to the legs uh, and, and assessing for pedal edema. And then you're, you're pretty much at, at the end. Is there anything else you think is worthy of mentioning after your initial auscultation? Because that end of the examination is really almost your time buying stage of the examination. If there's anything you want to go back to, you've got to do it after the auscultation because I've definitely heard stories of examiners, you know, you finished even 20, 30 seconds early. They'll ask whether you want to go straight into the, uh, the spiel or the presentation, and then you've lost your opportunity to double check anything you might be hesitant on. I mean, I, I, I'm a great fan of taking your time after the auscultation, even before it. So don't rush in, stare at the patient, look at them as, 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 as we've said, take your time going around, don't, don't forget blood pressure, that could be useful sometimes. And once you've finished and you're looking, even when you're looking for the edema, 
Start building in your mind what you think you found and what you're going to present and how you're going to present it. And what I always say to people, and I've examined on paces many times, is don't at the point that you're doing this think you have to give the diagnosis straight away. Build the picture in your mind, give a differential, and then then say which one you think it is and why. And that 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 would be my best advice. I just feel that people are always looking. I mean, it's it's human reaction. They're looking for the diagnosis straight away, and and just sometimes turns examiners off. So so I think, no, use that 30 seconds. It's really worthwhile. Don't be afraid to go back and listen if you're not sure of what am I going to tell them that I found? Am I just going to describe everything and give a differential? And then after that, give them the most likely diagnosis? Or am I just going to tell them what I found because I'm going a bit blank and I just can't quite work it out? So that would be my way of doing it. I like differential diagnoses all the time. So I don't think there's anything wrong with saying my two most likely differential diagnoses are aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation. Um, You will then be probed on the murmur more, probably. And you would describe, of course, aortic stenosis as ejection systolic. That means it's crescendo, decrescendo, and they'll ask you whether or not you feel it's that. And with mitral regurgitation, it's usually pan-systolic or mid to late systolic, which is just a crescendo murmur. Now, that's quite difficult, I think, to differentiate if you're not a cardiologist, to be frank with you. Um, so, so, so I would strongly advise people not to be too afraid to put those two forward. And if, if you feel comfortable because you've got other signs, atrial fibrillation, thrusting displaced, then plump at mitral regurgitation. But don't get so tongue-tied that you think you've got to give one name, and that's where the whole presentation often falls apart. Don't be prepared to stick and present in a full way. It, it, it gets you a lot more marks than you think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things to be conscious of is, is making your presentation make sense. It, everything's got to be consistent. You can't then say... Oh, you know, it's a it's a pan-systolic murmur, and um, therefore my preferred diagnosis is aortic stenosis. And that's where I mean, you can get away with it, of course, for MBBS, but not for paces. And that that's the difference. Um, you know, I I can tell you there are many very experienced um, doctors who cannot distinguish between aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation, and that's really the bit I want. Yes, there are distinguishing features, um, which which we've highlighted, but where I get anxious about. Uh, people I'm examining is when they're not being consistent with what they're saying and then they just decide to plump for one for the exact things that you've said that gets you a very low mark well if you build it up and say I genuinely am not sure if this is ejection systolic or just a crescendo murmur that is fine they may then decide to coax out of you what would you expect with aortic stenosis an early murmur mitral regurgitation if it's not pan-systolic mid to late that gets you marked so just be consistent as you quite rightly say Sam. yeah fantastic i guess we've already covered the next part which we which we usually cover which is the differential diagnosis you know we've already uh, we've already discussed aortic stenosis yeah. tricuspid regurgitation and again the important thing in the presentation is to justify the reasons why you feel it's not more likely to be those um uh, one other thing which i thought we could mention and again it's maybe not uh, as common as some of the things we've discussed is a is a vsd and that might be more uh, more likely if it is a particularly young patient because it's going to be if anything it's going to be a congenital vsd would that be something that would go through your head if it's a, if it's a younger patient only in a younger one because these days we close all vsds essentially that are there 
And yeah, this would be someone who really has very few physical signs, okay? So their pulse would feel fairly normal. JVP won't be raised. It shouldn't be raised if a young person's got a raised JVP. Someone needs to know why they haven't had their surgery already. So this will be someone that has what's called a restrictive BSD. So it means that they've got a tiny, tiny hole that's not causing any problems at all. They'll be seen in a centre every two years. And what they will have is a very loud murmur. The murmur will be almost certainly pan-systolic, and it will be loudest in inspiration. So yes, you're quite right. For younger people, VSD should be added to that. And I have to say, the, the first time I actually heard of VSD was during my preparation for paces and it is remarkably yes. loud it is far louder than most of the murmurs i listened to which were much regurgitation it's it's almost i mean don't alarm anyone but it is shockingly loud compared to some of the other murmurs which you might and, listen and, to and the reason for that is of course the murmur is due to the speed of flow of the blood so to give you an idea for severe aortic stenosis the flow is normally four meters per second for mitral regurgitation it's four and a half five for a restrictive vsd it's up to seven meters per second so so it's much faster and that's why the murmurs loud yeah and then next is going to come the causes of your mitral regurgitation and as you mentioned at the start there's pathology related to the mitral valve itself and then there's pathology related to the the heart and the heart size this is primary and secondary mitral regurgitation we're talking about isn't it Rajan? so yeah so the two most commonest issues with mitral regurgitation is either primary or secondary in the primary group, we have a group of disorders we call the degenerative mitral valve disease. And this includes mitral valve prolapse, and it includes age-related disorders of the mitral valve, which may cause it to leak. Then you've got the second primary group, which are to be thought through, particularly if you see someone of ethnic origin, particularly from China or from uh, Asia, and that is rheumatic heart disease as well. You've then got secondary causes of, of which the two you should think most prominently about are ischemic heart disease and heart failure. And the next thing which you'll be expected to do is to go through your investigations for this patient. And you'll be expected to do it in the conventional stepwise style, moving from the bedside all the way through to the to the special test. So, so Raj, what would you expect the candidates to talk about when they talk about investigating these patients? Yeah, so... The first line of investigation should be a chest X-ray, ECG, and blood test that sh should include a full blood count, urea electrolytes, and ideally a brain natriuretic peptide level would be what we would consider um, as being essential tests. But the hallmark and the key is echocardiography, which will tell you several things. It will give you the diagnosis of mitral regurgitation, it will quantify the mitral regurgitation for you and it will give you the mechanism of the mitral regurgitation. You will also, from the echo, be able to determine if any other heart valves are involved and most importantly, whether there are any hemodynamic consequences of the mitral regurgitation, i.e. Um, dilatation of the left ventricle, uh, impairment of left ventricular function or pulmonary hypertension. And that can all be achieved from a simple echocardiogram. Yeah. Fantastic. And depending, of course, on the findings of that and the nature of the, the pathology which is found, a TOE or a transesophageal echo may be indicated, but that is obviously dependent on exactly what the pathology might be. Yeah, so from the echo, you will know 
whether you've got mild, moderate or severe mitral regurgitation, and you will know whether there are any hemodynamic consequences. Now, if you've got severe mitral regurgitation in a symptomatic patient, you should be considering them for what we call mitral valve intervention. And you can make that decision from a transthoracic echocardiogram. A transesophageal echo, which is a more invasive procedure, um, patient has to swallow a probe. We only really reserve that if we're generally not sure from the transthoracic echo the severity of the mitral regurgitation, or we are contemplating what we call mitral valve repair, and we're looking at exactly what the complexity of that repair procedure would be. So not all patients with mitral regurgitation need a transesophageal echo, around 30 to 40%. Perfect. And so speaking of intervention and management of the condition, that will be the next thing the examiners are going to be asking yeah. our candidates about. And it's going to be highly dependent on the exact severity of the mitral regurgitation. Yeah. So if we start off with the, the, the mild and moderate yeah. Uh, disease, which is less likely to appear in patients, but it may well uh, be something you you expected to mention. What do we tend to do with those patients with the with the mild and moderate before we move on to yeah. those with severe disease? So the mild and moderate uh, mitral regurgitation statistically have a five to seven percent chance of progression of disease over a five to ten year period. So they are monitored usually with eighteen month to two yearly echocardiograms. Yeah. So in real terms. Nothing to write home about until we get to the severe element of disease. So severe disease uh, is, in a sense, quite simple. If you have severe mitral regurgitation and you have symptoms, you need intervention for that mitral valve. If you're asymptomatic and you have severe mitral regurgitation, we do consider other tests that help us, stress echocardiography, etc. But the general maxim is that if you've got other features on the echo, such as a raised pulmonary artery pressure, or if you've got a dilated left atrium, or the patient's in atrial fibrillation, you should still be considered for mitral valve surgery. If you have none of those features, then you can be surveyed. But if we feel that the valve itself is suitable for a repair, at low operative risk, we still sometimes consider those patients for mitral valve intervention as well. So so the take-home message is anyone who has severe mitral regurgitation need to be considered for mitral valve intervention. Fantastic. And now we probably get onto the the more interesting side of things, which is the the, the type of interventions which can be carried out on people's valves. And, And this has evolved quite recently with the evolution of the mitra clip. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the the types of patients who you consider for a repair and then those who you consider for a valve replacement and then those patients who you may consider for uh, a mitra clip. So you're quite right. There are now multiple interventions that we have. And and what, what I would first say to you is that across the UK, these decisions are decided by what's called a heart team. So this involves a surgeon an interventionist, an imaging doctor, and we try our best to come up with the best decision for that individual. It's based on many factors. Now, up until 1995, 96, most people were simply having a valve replacement. We've then, over the last 20 years, developed very sophisticated mitral valve repair techniques, which essentially involve um, replacing the cords that get broken with organic pathology or putting in what are called rings that allow the mitral valve to uh, work well. 
And they are still considered to be the gold standard. Now, what has evolved in the surgical field is what's called minimally invasive mitral valve surgery, where you can do these procedures for the vast majority, but not all mitral valve patients through minimal access, which is a shorter hospital stay, smaller scar, etc. So when we um, are looking at mitral valve intervention, we still consider surgery to be the mainstream. And we look at minimally invasive techniques as well as the conventional surgical techniques of repair. A proportion will still always need replacement and, and one shouldn't think that's always inferior. And what we do with those replacements is we replace the valve and then we do what's called caudal preservation. So we keep the caudal structures because the, the key to mitral valve function is the cords. So, so you still have that option. So, so the default option remains surgery, either conventional or minimal. And that depends on a number of features of the valve and indeed the patient themselves. Now, in patients at the moment who would not survive surgery or in whom we feel, you know, it would be too much, then we do look at minimal invasive techniques from the groin. So these are the transcatheter procedures, of which the most famous is the mitroclip. And this, involve, this involves clipping um, the anterior leaflet to a portion of the posterior leaflet of the vital valve under fluoroscopy. And you do get good results. Um, the reason why it's not become mainstream is that um, surgery in the vast majority of patients appears to improve outcome as well as improve symptoms. While with MitraClip, we've proved very well uh, an improvement in symptoms, but less so outcome. And the reason for that is that at the moment, MitraClip is largely being trialed and, and performed on patients who are not suitable for surgery. So therefore, their life expectancy tends to be short. So the take-home message is we, we, we do still consider surgery to be the mainstream, but increasingly we're trying minimal invasive techniques. But for patients who are not deemed to be fit for surgery, we will uh, offer the mitroclip if they have certain characteristics of the valve that lend itself to that. So if the disease is largely what we call due to excess leaflet tissue and mitral valve prolapse, clips are very good. For ischemic mitral regurgitation, clips not so good because it's a restrictive disease of the valve. But what we can do is what's called percutaneous mitral valve replacement. So you can actually replace the valve from the groin. But these percutaneous techniques of mitral clip, or there are other types of mitral valve repair um, from the groin or mitral valve replacement are still considered to be second line to surgery. Wow, what a great, great run through there. Most considerations that would need to be taken for a patient with mitral But I think from a patient's perspective, I think you may not need to go into the exact details of that, but the key, but the key uh, element to discuss is that it's going to be an MDT decision with input from all the professions as, 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 as Raj mentioned. And then one of the things I thought, I mean, my feeling is it would be quite a, uh, uh, maybe a mean question for the examiners to ask, but, or one question I've heard of that examiners ask is, what are the clinical versus the echocardiographic features of severe mitral regurgitation? So how would you go about explaining that one or, or giving a, an exemplar answer to that one, Raj? So, so the clinical features of severe mitral regurgitation would be uh, atrial fibrillation that only occurs with advanced mitral regurgitation. A thrusting displaced apex beat is a sign the left ventricle has now become dilated and is displaced. A, a palpable thrill is a sign of a very prominent murmur. Now, the auscultation process itself 
A pan-systolic murmur heard over the whole precordium suggests greater severity than someone with a mid to late ejection systolic murmur. So they're the main clinical features that suggest severe mitral regurgitation. Now for mechocardiography, we have a number, I mean, I'd be surprised if you're asked this question, but we have a number of what we call direct and indirect parameters of mitral regurgitation which are quite complicated that most cardiologists struggle to understand. But, but, but basically, we, we look for the direct parameters are measuring the width of the jet at its narrowest portion. It's called the vena contractor. We measure what's called the effective regurgitant orifice area of the leak. Um, and this relies on, on various physics principles. So there are direct measurements that we give you as well for severity. But the other way of looking at severity is not just measuring how severe it is, it's the consequences of, on the heart. So if you've got mitral regurgitation with a dilated left ventricle that's got impaired function, that really is very severe and you have to operate. And actually, one of the things about mitral regurgitation is the reason why all guidelines are about early operation is if you leave it for too long and the heart gets too dilated and the heart function declines to the point that it's poor, then you may be too late for that patient because actually replacing the valve at that point or repairing the valve at that point is not going to make the heart get better. So, so from echo and from clinical features, knowing the hemodynamic consequences of, 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 of the leak are really important. Yeah, fantastic. How often do you, do you find clinical signs or su- suggestive of pulmonary hypertension? It's often mentioned as a, as a complication of Indeed. chronic severe mitral regurgitation. So how, how prevalent is that in, in this cohort of patients? Thankfully, rare, because we've got so much alert to primary care and so good access to echo, we pick it up early. So in fact, it's quite unusual now to have significant pulmonary hypertension at the time of presentation. We've seen it regrettably a little bit more in the last two years because of COVID and lack of access to ECHO and any type of healthcare service. So you do see it, but it's rarer than you think, actually. Um, again, you, you can pick it up clinically based on the raised JVP, as we've said, um, and on ECHO, you measure it. It's very easy to quantify or, 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 or to assess the presence of pulmonary, the pressure based on the tricuspid regurgitation jet. So, so we can do that. But it's not as common as you would think. You've really got to have quite advanced much regurgitation to have an elevation of your pulmonary pressures. Fantastic. Well, I think that's pretty much everything we wanted to cover when talking about the examination, presentation, investigations, and management of these patients with mitral regurgitation so without uh, further ado let's jump into quiz the consultant It's time for the greatest regular non-medical quiz to feature on a medical podcast. It's Quiz the Consultants. Welcome to Quiz the Consultant. This is our regular feature where 
each boss who comes on the show takes on a specialist subject of their own choosing on a non-medical topic. So, Raj, you mentioned at the top of the show, but what is your specialist subject? 1980s pop music. Can I ask, what is there a specific passion of this type of music? Because, as I said before, we've had it on the show before. It's obviously an absolute joy for me to write a quiz on, but what's your inspiration to choose the topic? My inspiration is, obviously, I'm a little bit older than you. I spent my teenage years in the 1980s. We didn't have the internet. There was nothing on TV. So so we spent an awful lot of time listening to music. There was a program called Top of the Pops, which was our, you know, that's what we used to look forward to on a Thursday night, believe it or not. So, so that's kind of where it comes from. And actually, my teenage children tell me that 1980s culture seems to be coming back into fashion. So there you go. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said... I'm not complaining at all. I love the 80s and I loved I loved writing the quiz the first time around and I'm definitely happy about writing a second one. So this is how we play. There's 10 quick fire questions. If you get the answer without the multiple choice options, you get two points. If you're struggling and you need a little bit of a helping hand, we can give you four multiple choice options. And if you get it after that, you get one point. So there's 20 points up for grabs. All right, let's go. Okay, question number one. Beat It by Michael Jackson was one of the best-selling singles of the 1980s, but which album was it from? Beat It was in Thriller, wasn't it? Correct. For two points, he's on the board. Question number two. Which artist featured on the song Under Pressure by Queen, released in 1981? Um, So that was David Bowie and Freddie Mercury, wasn't it? Correct. It was David Bowie who featured in Under Pressure. Question number three. Karma Chameleon was the best-selling UK single in 1983, but who was it by? Which band? It was the Culture Club and Boy George, yeah. Correct. Three from three. No multiple choices yet. Yes. Maybe this one. Question number four. What was the best-selling single of the 1980s? I'm bound to abort it. That's the same thing. I'm tempted to say relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, but I'm going to bottle it and say give me a... give me. I'm going to go for the MCQ on that one. Okay, taking the MCQs. Was it Purple Rain by Prince? Was it Every Breath You Take by Sting and the Police? Was it Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid? Or was it Ride on Time by Black Box? Do, do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid? Correct, for one point. Question number five. Eye of the Tiger was the featured song on a famous film in the 1980s. I want one point for the artist and one point for the film. The film was Rocky Three, and the artist... Was it Survivor? It was Survivor. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, you know what? I would have given you Rocky as well, but you even got the fact it was Rocky Three. You can see how I wasted my youth, can't you? Yeah. (laughs) Question number six. The Joshua Tree became the fastest selling album in British history in 1987. From which band? I saw them four times in the 1980s, so you two, yeah. Fantastic. (laughs) Fantastic. You two. Correct again for three points. Which world famous artist's real name? is Reginald Dwight. Okay, MCQ for this. I I, I should know this, but go on. Yeah. Okay, 
multiple choice. Is it the real name for Prince? Is Reginald Dwight the name of Rick Astley? Is it the real name of Cliff Richard? Or is it the real name for Elton John? Oh, God. I'm going to go with... Is it Rick Astley? It's not Rick Astley. It's Elton John. I nearly went for him, because in fact, the recent movie, I knew he had another name I've forgotten, but never mind. Okay, question number eight. If someone has been Rickrolled, which song has been played to them? Rickrolled? I don't know this one, actually. Back to the MCQ for me. If someone's been Rickrolled, which of these songs has been played? Is it Proud Mary by Tina Turner? Is it Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye? Is it Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley? Or is it Careless Whisper by George Michael? Well, I had Rick Astley on my mind, so Never Gonna Give You Up. Yeah, correct for one point. Everyone... Yeah, I thought you said Rick Rolled, but Rick Rolled. Okay, yeah, yeah, very good. Question number nine. Who sang the song that starts with these lyrics? We can dance if we want to. We can leave your friends behind because your friends don't dance. And if they don't dance, well, they're no friends of mine. Oh, this is familiar. Again, go to the MCQ. Okay. So is that a song by The Buggles, by Starship, by Men Without Hats, or by Belinda Carlisle? Men Without Hats. What Men Without Hats? Last question. Question number 10. Which 1980s artist told us, you can't hurry love, you'll be in my heart, and something happened on the way to heaven? That's Phil Collins. That is Phil Collins. And that leaves you, Rajan Sharma, with a final score of 15 out of 20. I think that's a pretty respectable score. 15 out of 20. Thank you. But Raj, thanks for being such a good sport. It's it's true. It's not all about the winning. It's all about the taking part. We have absolutely loved having you on the show today to discuss uh, much regurgitation and loved it even more to discuss a bit more about 1980s pop. So <laughs> we owe you a, a huge debt of gratitude. Thank you so much for being on the show. No worries. And thanks very much for, for, for the whole show, Sam. And well done with the work you're doing. Brilliant. That's very kind, Raj, and thank you very, very much. Uh, And it's made by consultants like yourself giving up time to come on the show, so that is always appreciated. Well, listeners, that is the end of another show. Don't forget, we always love to hear from you. Give us a shout on our Twitter. It's at prepacespodcast, or get in touch via the website. That's prepacespodcast.com. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the show. Leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really want to go above and beyond... As always, you can support the show. It's buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. <laughs>